Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. For the last uh, couple months, we've been looking through 1 Thessalonians. The beautiful reminder this book is of God's promise to watch over us and His calling upon us to live as those who belong to Him. Some wonderful instruction for all parts of the congregation in all aspects of our life. Today we look at a very practical and yet also a very comforting section with which Paul closes this letter. We're going to read beginning in verse 12 so that we can see the context, but we're going to to focus on verses 16 through 24. The Apostle writes, And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly. Comfort the faint-hearted. Uphold the weak. Be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The Lord, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, beloved of our Lord, a week ago, I had the privilege of asking the two young ladies who stood up here a moment ago. I I guess I need to give you the backstory. I always prepare or try to prepare the young people who come to the consistory for profession of faith so that we're not catching them off guard. Tell them, we're not trying to trip you up. We're not trying to confuse you. This is an opportunity for you to express to the elders what your faith is and that you understand what we believe. And I always tell them that the first question is the most important because it's the broadest and it's the one that gets to the heart. What is, what does it mean to you to be a Christian? What's that mean? And their answer Both of them, though they answered in different words, were beautiful testimonies of their faith that in Christ is their hope, in Christ alone is their salvation. But they didn't stop with confessing Jesus as their Savior. They also confessed that He is their King, the one whose desires they desire to fulfill, the one whose commands they long to obey, the one who loves us and who, who gives, <laughs> gives us commands that are always good for us. <clears throat> what they expressed is what we all should be convicted of, that Jesus is the Savior 
who gives us life, but that He's also the King who directs our life. And rare is the passage of Scripture which emphasizes to us the Lord's comprehensive claim upon us as clearly as does this final passage of 1 Thessalonians. From start to end, these verses speak sweepingly about our calling to love and honor, to obey and serve the Lord our God, but also to trust that He will hold us fast, that He will do within us that which He commands of us. That's intentional. Jesus told those who began following Him back in Luke 14 that they needed to count the cost before they became His disciples. Because He would give them life, He would give them hope, He would give them the kingdom, but He would also call them to put Him first, before their family, before their children, before their friends, before anything. He said, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. The salvation we're given in Christ, it comes to us freely. Jesus paid everything for it. He did it all. But to those, or from those to whom it comes... It demands everything. Because now we are His. Now we belong to Him. And now our lives ought to be devoted to Him. And that's what this passage calls to us urging. God calls His people to absolute devotion. Now as we examine that calling, we're going to see that there's, there's a few different aspects of that. This internal or this absolute devotion that we're to have, it has internal aspects that we're to express. It has an aspect of, of receiving that which we receive or that which is given to us by the Lord from outside. But above all, it has the calling to expect and to embrace that which God promises to give us freely. God calls His people to absolute devotion. And the first aspect of that calling involves expressing their trust in God. Expressing their trust in God. Which is what we see in verses 16 through 18. Three very terse commands that together express the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, for the church. Now this speaks to us, the church here in Pella, just as much as it did to the church in Thessalonica back then. Because we are in Christ, God's will for the members of His church is that we obey these three commands. Because these three commands, you see, they call us to express. This is what they have in common. They call us to express our trust, our confidence in the Lord. Specifically, our trust that He's sovereign. See, we can't do these three commands. We can't keep these three commands. If we don't believe that God is sovereign, that He is in control of all things, that there's nothing that happens in this world, in all the creation, apart from His will, and that God is good, that He ordains that which is ultimately going to bless His people. If we don't believe that God is sovereign and God is good, we can't do these things. But if we believe that, then obeying these three commands will demonstrate that to the world. So first He tells us, rejoice always. Always. How do we rejoice? How do we express our joy always? The natural man can't. Because his joy is an emotion based on the situation. He rejoices when things go well, when he's getting along with his co-workers, when the job goes well, when his parents are treating him just right. 
when he's got money in his pocket and the sun's shining, yeah, he can rejoice then. But, but when things start to go south, the emotion disappears, the joy disappears, life is terrible. Our joy is to be different. Because our joy doesn't rest merely in the situation, doesn't rest merely on the circumstance, doesn't even rest on the emotion that we feel. Our joy as Christians rests in the fact that we know God is in charge of everything and that He does everything exactly the way it needs to happen. Our joy rests in the reality that we know He sent His Son Jesus to die for us. That's how much He loves us. And if He loves us that much, He's not going to fail to use that sovereignty to bless us. So we can rejoice always. When the sun's shining and everything's good and we're surrounded by family and friends, obviously we can rejoice. <clears throat> but also when we fail that test. Or when work was horrible. Or when our best friend betrays us. We can rejoice even when the circumstances are terrible and the emotion disappears because we know that God is still on the throne and that He still loves us enough that He sent His Son Jesus for us and that therefore all of this ultimately will work out for our good. We don't know how, we can't imagine how, but we can rejoice knowing that God is in control and not us and not those people. We can rejoice when there's rioting in the streets and a pandemic in our nation because we know that God's still in control. And we don't know how all this is going to turn out, but we know that He does. And that no man, woman, child, power, principality, nothing can thwart His perfect purposes so we can rejoice. But as we rejoice always, we also are called to pray without ceasing. Now, there are a few different words in Greek for pray. A few different verbs. But the one that we find here in verse 17 is exceedingly broad. It's not one of the narrower words that describes a particular kind of prayer or a particular mode of prayer. It's broad. It speaks of the words that we speak when we make our requests to God, but also the trust that underlies those words. The expressions of thanksgiving and faith that characterize our prayer and also the communion that fills it. What he's saying here is not... Children, I, I don't know about you, but this used to confuse me. Pray without ceasing. Well, how do we get anything else done? Right? That didn't make sense to me. But he's not saying that, that he expects us to be speaking words of prayer day and night all times. He's saying we're called to live consciously, intentionally in the presence of God. We're to confess with David in Psalm 139 that the Lord knows us and sees our every movement, our every thought, our every action, our every circumstance. We need to be conscious that the Holy Spirit is with us and within us at all times. And that He who dwells with us loves us. Who will pray if he thinks that God really doesn't care what he thinks, what he says, what he desires? But we are those who have heard Jesus say in John 16, The Father Himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. God loves us because we love Jesus. And therefore, He desires to hear us, but He also desires that relationship that prayer implies. 
When he says pray without ceasing, he means walk through your life with an understanding that God is with you and that God cares about you and that God is molding and shaping every aspect of your life. It means that you begin the day with prayer, asking God to bless everything that you do and everything that you think, but also that throughout the day, when you encounter a little blessing, you say thank you to the Lord. And when you encounter a little struggle, you ask the Lord for His strength and His guidance. That throughout the day you carry on a a continuous dialogue with God, recognizing that He is with you, desiring to grow in that relationship with Him. Adrian and Sidney, that's part of this Christian discipleship, this walk with your King, is that constant communion that you have with Him. Rejoice always. You can't do that without constantly praying, right? Cultivating that relationship with the Lord. And as you do that, you will in everything give thanks. It follows after. Because if we're rejoicing, because we understand that God is sovereign and that God loves us, if we're carrying on a continual conversation with Him, it's going to begin dawning upon us regularly. It's going to become obvious that He's using all things for our good. And we're going to... Now notice something here. He says rejoice always. That speaks of time, right? Always be rejoicing. But, but in everything give thanks. That speaks to the circumstances. That's easy sometimes, isn't it? When you've just received a promotion at work. When your body feels good, you, you take a run or you do some exercise and everything's just working right. When you're having a wonderful time with your spouse, with your girlfriend or your boyfriend, when everything's going well, yeah, we can give thanks. But we need to be able to give thanks when, when our car breaks down. Or when, instead of getting a raise, we get demoted at work. Or when we have a little spat with our spouse or a struggle with one of our children or our parents. How do we give thanks in the face of that? We give thanks in the face of that if we understand, again, that God is sovereign, that God is using this for our good. Because then we'll start to see that that even when it looks terrible in our eyes, God is using it for our good. He is in control. Folks, this threefold command of verses 16 through 18, it encompasses all of life. Every moment of every day, no matter what is happening, He wants us to rejoice. Throughout that time, He wants us cultivating a time of communion, of prayer with Him. And as we're doing that, He wants us to behold that everything in life, because He's working it, because He's shaping it, everything in life is worth giving thanks for. And as we do that, the world around us, and our own children. They're going to see that we're expressing trust in Him. That's the only way we can do this. The only way you can rejoice at work when work is going badly. The only way you can shut off the cacophony of our busy lives with all of the media, with all of the noise, And commune constantly with the Lord. The only way you can give thanks when it looks to your eyes like there's no 
reason to give thanks is if you trust wholly in the Lord. So it's about how we express our faith to others and and to the Lord. But also in verses 19 through 22, the Lord calls us to embrace His counsel to us. So not only are we to express our faith in Him, our trust in Him to others, we're to embrace His counsel to us. And that encompasses three negative or two negative commands plus one positive. First, the negative commands in verses 19 and 20, he says, Do not quench the spirit to quench something. Think of a fire. Right? The Holy Spirit is often described in Scripture as a fire. Something that comes quickly and without warning, an unstoppable force that works powerfully, radically altering all of that upon which it acts. Well, that's what the Holy Spirit is like. He comes upon us without warning. And He fills us and He transforms us with great power. But, He says it's possible to quench the Spirit. Not to cast Him out. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about believers uh, falling away from grace. That's impossible. But, but it is possible to quench the Spirit. That's what you do when you when you disbelieve or scorn the message that He sends through the Scriptures or through faithful servants. Or when you explain away the radical changes that He's wrought in your life or in someone else's as something just naturalistic or something that you accomplished. Or when you ignore the the pinprick of the Holy Spirit in your conscience urging you not to do what you're about to do. These are all ways of quenching, of smothering the work of the Holy Spirit. And likewise, when we despise prophecies. Now, most directly, that command spoke to a situation that doesn't exist anymore. Because this was written to the church in a time of infancy. They didn't have the New Testament yet collected. God's people were small and oppressed, and they were in desperate need of His guidance. And so God gave certain helps for His people at that time, one of which was active prophecy, a gift given to some by which they could speak forth the truth of God infallibly, truly. The problem with prophesying is that every time God builds a church, Satan seeks to build a chapel. In other words, he's the great imitator. So where there's true prophets, Satan raises up false prophets. Well, the easiest way to deal with that is just don't believe anybody who calls himself a prophet. But the problem with that is you eliminate the good prophecy along with the lies. So he says don't despise prophecies. Don't scorn them. Don't neglect that gift that God has given. Now listen, we're, we're beyond the age in which infallible prophets are raised up by God. He's given us now the collected prophecy that we find in the 66 books of the Bible. He gives us the Holy Spirit to understand that prophecy and to apply it to our hearts, but but He doesn't give new prophecy. But nonetheless, this command comes to us. Because we must not despise, we must not scorn, we must not take lightly the Bible. That's what you do, young people, if you don't use it at all. That's what you do, adults. When you don't Take hold of the Scripture as it's preached to you and ponder how to apply it to your life. That's what you do when your brother lovingly comes to you and rebukes you for the sin that you're committing according to the Scriptures and you ignore him or you explain it away. 
We must not despise prophecies. But in order to ensure that we don't despise prophecy, but we do despise false prophecy, we need to test all things, he says. Especially that which presents itself as coming from God. That which claims the authority of the Holy Spirit. This we must carefully evaluate. That involves teaching and preaching. Whoever is in your pulpit, I've told my kids this in catechism, haven't I, guys? You need to have your Bible open. I always, I'm old-fashioned. I insist they carry their Bible to catechism class, not some tablet, not their phone. I want paper. Because you can open that Bible. It won't go to sleep. It won't blank out. You don't have to worry about recharging the batteries. You can open it and watch what the, the pastor read, and then you can leave it sit there. And as he speaks, you can evaluate what he says against that word. And we desperately need to do that. No matter who's in the pulpit, we need to be evaluating what they say and what they preach. But also, when we're sitting in the classroom, some of you go to state colleges or public schools. You know you've got to test everything, right? You know everything has to be run through the the filter of what God has said in His Word. But but what about when you go to a, a Christian's grade school or high school? What do you buy when you go to, to Trinity or Dort or Geneva? You need to filter all of that through God's Word. Test everything that's comprehensive. Absolutely everything that someone says to you. That which you hear on the radio. That which you see on the TV or the internet. And certainly that which you hear directly to you. You need to test it all. Applying the standard of God's Word. Does this fit with what God has said? Because if it in any way is contradicted by Scripture, we need to believe God rather than that teacher. We need to believe God rather than that friend. We need to believe God rather than that minister. We always need to believe God first. Even over our own emotions, our own feelings. Sometimes, well, we hear the songs, right? If it feels so right, how can it be wrong? Well, it can easily be wrong because we're sinful. And it can easily be wrong because we're influenced by a sinful society that is bent on disobeying and rebelling against the Lord. Shannon, Kyle, you guys know that. And you know the struggles that Reagan's going to have growing up. Being influenced by a world that, that desires to lead her away from the truth and life. And so you need to test things for her. What media will she be exposed to? What, uh, what is she receiving in school as she gets older? What, what opportunities does she have to be influenced by the world, right? That's what we're called to do as parents and grandparents. And, and we all took that vow as a church, Right? We need to not only test all things, but to teach one another to test all things and to hold fast what is good. Whatever is in agreement with God's Word, hold it tight. Don't let it go. That's what we receive. The truth of God that leads us into greater holiness, into greater maturity. It's comprehensive, isn't it? And as we do that, we're to keep in mind this command, abstain from every form of evil. Abstain is a strong word. It's the exact opposite of the one in verse 21, hold fast. It's a call to keep away. It's a call to cast off 
anything that is contrary to God's word or God's will. Anything that would set us apart, that would pit us against the Lord. And some of it is so very attractive. That person who promises that you can be so very popular if you just do these things that you know from God's word are wrong. That promotion that you've longed for, but you know it'll cause you to compromise in what God has said you should do. That anger that boils up within you that you know it'll feel so satisfying to let off with a good yell and a good... No. Abstain from every form of evil which would compromise your witness and come between you and the Lord. Instead, test all things and hold fast what is good. Comprehensive, utterly life-encompassing. But here's the problem. We can't do it. We can't do it. I praise the Lord. God did not allow the apostle to stop to put his pen down at this point. Abstain from every form of evil. Amen. Have a nice day. How hopeless would we be? Because I don't know about you, but every day I fall short. Every day I fail. Every day I set goals to be better, to do better, to cultivate a better life with the Lord. And every day I fall short. But praise the Lord, He never does fall short. And it's in knowing that and believing that that we find the the final part of our calling to live before our King. Because even as we strive to express our trust in Christ, even as we strive to embrace His counsel, at the same time we have to confess that we're weak and that we're unable. So the Apostle shows us how we must respond to that reality, not by giving up hope, but rather by learning to expect our perfection by God. And that's what we see in verses 23 and 24. In verse 23, we find a two-part prayer. Now, may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. Kids, do you remember what it means to be sanctified? It means to be made holy. If someone is holy, they're completely devoted to the Lord. Not to their sin, not to their community, not to anything. They're, con- they're devoted to the Lord, right? Problem is, we're not holy, are we? We're working on it. We're trying. We know we're called to holiness, but we fall short. So this is a prayer that God would make us perfect. After all, He's the one who commands us to separate from sin and to no longer rely on ourselves. He's completely sovereign. He has the power to change us. And He loves us. As we read this command, or this prayer, it calls us to to look back. God calls us to rejoice in all, at all times, to give thanks in all circumstances. But He calls us to do those things as we pray, as we express our trust in Him, as we rely upon Him. And now the Apostle prays, may God do that which you prayed for. May He sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept Preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Your whole spirit, soul, and body. That is everything. That's everything about you that folks can see and everything about you that they can't see. It's everything physical and also everything spiritual. Everything ugly and also everything glorious. All of it, Paul prays, will be kept blameless at the coming of Christ. Notice how passive that is. 
that we will be kept, that something will act upon us. What will happen? That we will be kept blameless. We are blameless in Christ. If we trust Him, we're blameless in the eyes of God in Christ. But we know that our hands are still stained, right? We're still falling short. And so he prays that the Lord would cause us to be blameless. That more and more he would lead us to cast off sin. That he would lead us to take up that devotion to God. And notice the time frame at Christ's return. At the time when all stand before God's judgment throne. At the time when... When everyone answers for their life and when the testimony of their deeds demonstrates whether they are members of Christ or enemies of Him. Understand that this prayer expresses exactly, precisely what we need. That someone else would make us holy and keep us blameless in righteousness. That this someone else would be God who loves us in Christ and who calls us to trust Him. We need Him to teach and to empower us to do that which He commands us. That He would teach us to express our trust in Him absolutely. That He would lead us to embrace His counsel to us completely. We need that and we need it fully at the coming of Christ our Judge. And so that's what Paul prays, both for the church in Thessalonica and for us. And verse 24 shows us that that's exactly what we can expect He who calls you is faithful. Who is he who calls us? Young people. Who is he who calls us? Is it not Christ? The one who lived for us and died for us and rose again and now reigns in heaven on our behalf. Isn't he the one who calls us and says, lay down your burden. Set aside your supposed sovereignty and trust in me serve me love me expect me to give you what you need he who calls you is faithful he never lets us down he never makes a promise that he then doesn't keep he never forgets us he never falls short he who calls you is faithful who will do it That means that when the day dawns that Christ returns and you stand before Him, yes, you'll look back on your life and you'll think about all the ways you fell short, all the things that you didn't do that you should have and that you did do that you shouldn't have. But He'll look upon you and say, blameless, perfect, because I've done it. And from that point on into eternity, you will not sin, you will not fall short, you will not fail. Because He has done it. Beloved, this is comfort. Our God calls us to absolute devotion. Devotion of the sort that reveals itself in our visible faith. Devotion that that makes us long to hear God and take up His commandments. And we can't do it. We're weak. We're unable. But He is faithful. And He is good and He will do it in us. Beloved people of God, let us look to Him who alone is able to perfect us and preserve us unto eternity. And let us fully and eagerly expect our perfection through Him. Amen.
Let us pray. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, You are the one who has done everything good in our lives. In You we rejoice and we give You thanks. And we pray that You would hold us firm, transforming us day by day until at the day of Christ it might be declared that we are blameless in Your sight, blameless in reality, and all because of the work that You have accomplished in us. Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.